Hello and welcome to the Energy Pioneers Podcast, a show dedicated to the legacy of the pioneers of the offshore oil and gas industry. I'm energy historian Jason Terrio. Each podcast episode features stories of industry pioneers whose leadership, grit, and technological expertise built the modern offshore industry in the Gulf of Mexico and around the world. For more than two decades, the Houston-based Oilfield Energy Center, now the Energy Education Foundation, has honored these legendary men and women by inducting them into the OEC's Hall of Fame. The stories you will hear are from the Hall of Famers themselves, whose original interviews, some recorded 25 years ago, have been digitally remastered and preserved for posterity. The foundation for the offshore oil and gas industry is centered around technology and innovative people. Physically speaking, though, it's the steel jacket platform structure that provided a base from which the offshore industry evolved from the shallow waters just off the coast to the deep water depths a few hundred miles out. This jacket technology, largely developed and constructed by two giants of industry along the Gulf Coast, became the standard method for producing petroleum in the hurricane-prone waters of the Gulf of Mexico and later expanded around the world. Built of tubular steel members, fabricated together by skilled fitters and welders, and launched and installed by marine contractors using state-of-the-art systems, the jacket provided the industry with an economical, ironclad solution for producing hydrocarbons offshore. From the 1950s to the 1990s, the industry installed roughly 4,000 steel jacket platforms in the Gulf of Mexico, from depths of 20 feet to over 1,000 feet. Griff Lee, who started with Humble Oil in 1948 and later spent a career with J. Ray McDermott, is considered by most to be the father of the offshore jacket design. Like many offshore pioneers, he came out of World War II and university training equipped with new knowledge and experiences and set his sights on a new career. The offshore oil industry, still in its infancy, seemed a perfect proving ground for a young, aggressive engineer. In 1954, just as the industry jumped out into the deep, Griff joined one of the leading pioneering offshore construction companies, J. Ray McDermott, and eventually became vice president of engineering. Griff Lee's footprint on the industry in the Gulf of Mexico is far and wide and expands half a century. The way I entered the offshore industry is like most people select things almost totally by accident. I got out of the Navy, went back and finished school, and went to work for the Humble Oil Ring Finding Company and showed up February of 1948. And they were just beginning their offshore platform construction. And I was single at the time, and so they sent me offshore because they knew I wouldn't get home that night. My wife will tell you there's been a lot of other nights I didn't get back home either. But uh, this was in New Orleans, and I worked there in New Orleans for a period of time. And then uh, Humble, now Exxon, allowed me to transfer to Houston because I wanted to go to Rice part-time for a graduate program. And at that time, the uh, platform design and review of designs was being performed in the Houston office. So I began working on that with Humble at that time, and they set up a group with several of us in it, and we were their basic uh, headquarters design group. The construction of platforms had actually begun. The first structure started in early 1940s, late 1947. 
And so I didn't quite make the very first. I went to work early 48. And these platforms were first use of the jacket or template, which is the a framework made of pile or cylindrical members that has legs, which are the vertical cylinders that open at the top and open at the bottom. They're braced together to form almost looks like the framework of a high-rise building in the city. Of course, there are no floors or anything. These are set on the ocean floor and piles driven down through the open legs that anchor it to the, the seabed, and then the deck or superstructure is set on those. The first ones were built with very small equipment. There was no big equipment available. In fact, the first one I went out on, the, equi the floating equipment was a Navy surplus LST hull with a 75-ton crane mounted on it. And the, uh, uh, some of them were even more crude than that. These were very shallow water, and the industry had not learned at that time how to drive piles on a batter. They all had to be vertical. And so this jacket or template the industry still can't decide which one it is. They use both names. Was primarily thought to be a pile driving guide. Because if you didn't do that, it was very difficult in 20 or 50 feet of water to put the piles where you wanted to, unless there was some guide. Few platforms were built that way. They put one pile here and one pile here and one pile there, and they were within only, it was difficult to get them to line up or put them where you wanted them. So the template was first thought to be a, a pile driving guide. Then they began to realize that it really was a structural element because the bracing that goes back and forth would take the load from the side, which is the wind, wave, and current load, and transmit it down to the foundation. And the offshore platform carries more horizontal load from wind, wave, and current than any other kind of structure normally has to carry. And so that bracing is very important. And later on, as it became more obvious that it was necessary to do as much work as you possibly could on shore where you weren't subject to the whims of the weather and then carry a few big pieces offshore. The construction equipment got heavier, the transport barges were bigger, and the construction barges, the lift barges, or soon called derrick barges, got to be larger. And so as these got larger, the components could be bigger. The industry learned to handle battered piles or leaning piles, which gave it much more stability and that it had a wider base. Long before the steel jacket design entered the scene, oil companies and contractors, even startups like J. Ray McDermott, used the rudimentary system of wood piles, known as stick building, to construct timber platform structures in the coastal areas. Most of the operations used for this type of marshland work required barge-mounted equipment and dredged canals. The industry simply installed land-based equipment onto barges for work in the shallow, boggy terrain. Gradually, that technology evolved to adapt to an open water environment. Griff Lee entered the industry at the transition from coastal oil development to the shallow open waters of the Gulf. The industry learned by doing and by adapting some of the existing technology for use offshore. But that technology had its limits. New ideas and designs would be required to make offshore development economical and sustainable for the long run. Wooden piles were the 38 and 39. They started in the Creole field, and I think, I don't try to remember dates, but Exxon in the High Island area not long after that. So the, but you see, that was exactly the same kind of construction that was built in the marshes before the uh, barges were built. The, in the first area to build the 
dig a canal and then put up a timber foundation because then they'd bring barges in and move the rig from the barge on top of the timber foundation, drill a well, and then pull the rig back off. And later on, the, the uh, barge or the slotted hull barge, they built a barge with a slot. And the well, Derek sat over that, and they would set the barge on bottom, drill the well, and then they would back the barge up this way and leave the well with a little structure around it. And so this building them one piece at a time out of timber started in the in the inshore operations, marsh and swamp. And it was soon found you didn't have to, if you had the one of the barges that, uh, now that was a patent. You see, that concept was uh, worked on by a man named Giliasso. And Texaco found out about it and wanted to use it. And they found him on living on one of the South Sea Islands to buy the rights of his patent. So uh, this was all done before they realized that open canals and marshland could be environmental problems. And so uh, that let salt water where it shouldn't be and caused a number of problems that that doesn't happen anymore. They've been, these open canals have been filled in one end to put a dam across the end of it so that, uh, and the regulations are quite different. But this was many years ago when they dug all these canals because uh, McDermott had been in, uh, when Louisiana inshore work began, the marsh swamps, uh, McDermott was doing some of that work. You know, they would, they had a dredging unit which would dig the canals and they built the timber platforms and uh, that inshore marsh work. And when the oil companies wanted to go offshore, it was just a natural, the same people were working for them and they were willing to, they put together a group of people and tried to go out and make it work and they did. They had an original chief engineer at that time who was with McDermott, his name M.B. Willie. He and two or three other people each claimed to have invented the jacket. But there again, that wasn't patented because that went back quite a long way. And it was just a gradual evolution. The industry was really fortunate. We didn't have to put a man on the moon the first try. We began in 20 feet of water and worked out further and further. And the deepest platform now is the one being installed before too long, the Texaco Petronius, which is 1,700 and something feet of water. As jackets got heavier and more complex, the need to transport and launch these structures safely and timely out into deeper water pushed contractors to develop new, sophisticated designs and marine equipment, such as the heavy-duty derrick barges. With the threat of hurricanes three months out of the year, putting in and securing these platforms required swift action. Griff Lee had a hand to play in the development of the launch barges and derrick barges that became the workhorses of the offshore industry. One of the things I felt like working with one other engineer we developed was the first jacket which was launched. The, in fact, we tried to patent it only to find out that wouldn't work. The uh, offshore industry up until that time couldn't have a jacket bigger than could be picked up by a crane. And we re soon realized that as we moved into deeper water, the jackets would get too big for the cranes to pick up. And so the idea was, why not launch the jacket exactly the same way you launch a ship at a shipyard? But uh, it didn't quite work that way because it had no nice smooth bottom. So on two of the legs, you had to build some sort of skidway or rail or launchway. And then you had to put something like that that matched it on the barge. You'd then incline the barge. And at the end of the barge, you needed a a rocker or a pivot because you couldn't slide it off over a hard point. So it had to slide off to a certain point and then the whole thing pivot 
first one that was launched was one we did for Gulf, and it was about, I'd say, 1955. It's in that range. Might have been 56, but it was in the 40, 55 range. There is one feeling, though, when they, it's fairly controlled. They slide in very carefully designed guides. They really have trouble going anywhere else, and they definitely float. There's substantial reserve buoyancy. And so they float in the horizontal position. They just slide off and float. Almost all have done that. Then what you do is use the floating crane or the derrick barge to pick up one end and move it up in an open valve so that as you move up, it begins to flood and you can set it on bottom. There have been some exciting moments, though, on these. Uh, the one that probably got people biting their nails more than any other was one of the deep water structures that was launched for uh, Union Oil. And it was so long that it got, was it predicted, a very substantial, oh, not like a car, but it was moving fairly rapidly when it went into water, and it was going to go completely underwater. And it was supposed to stay underwater based on the model test and the mathematical prediction like a 30 or 45 seconds. The people that were out there said that was the longest 45 seconds they ever saw, because when that thing went under, you couldn't see anything but foam, and then it did come back up. When they go clear underwater and out of sight, though, you sure hope they're coming back up. Utilizing specially designed launch barges solved one technical problem for offshore jackets. Griff Lee's group tackled another problem that plagued the industry early on with properly securing the platforms to the ocean bottom. He led a design team that came up with the first skirt pile concept, which became an industry standard for decades. The other development which came on about then uh, in the very soft soil near the mouth of the river. McDermott in 54 was designing a platform for Shell. And the foundation was so poor that if you put in a row of piles, the wave load on that row of piles was so much you needed another row. And so it was a catch-22 situation. If you had two piles, you needed four. If you had four piles, you needed eight. And so the same engineer was named Bill Bailey. He and I put together and worked what's called a skirt pile. And that was a tube or a cylinder or a guide near the bottom of the structure. It's like the jacket leg, but it only comes up 20, 40, 50, 100 feet, whatever is necessary. The pile is driven through that. And then the pile, the area, the annulus between the pile and the sleeve is filled with grout. And that, in effect, puts foundation on a structure that doesn't come up into the area where the uh, highway force is. He and I tried to patent that on to find out some Austrian bridge builder had patented it in the previous century. That was the end of my attempting patents. So two trials didn't work. But those skirt piles have been used on just all the deep water platforms. That's a primary tool being used today. It's a shame I couldn't patent it, you see. That, uh, there are just thousands of them out there now. As the need for offshore construction equipment and expertise continued to expand, McDermott took the lead, along with Brown and Root, in the competitive field of marine fabrication. These companies invested heavily in equipment, personnel, and infrastructure. They developed the in-house capacity to mill roll huge 30-inch diameter steel pipe used to fabricate the legs of these giant offshore structures. At the height of offshore construction, McDermott employed nearly 2,000 skilled workers, mostly from South Louisiana. Griff worked his way up the ladder, becoming vice president of engineering at the company's massive facility in Morgan City at the zenith of the offshore industry. During that time, 
his engineering department cranked out on average about a hundred platform designs a year. Three companies that were in the early days was Horace Williams that worked almost exclusively for Exxon or Humboldt and McDermott and Brown and Root. And Horace Williams was not as aggressive and got out of the business after a while, but the McDermott and Brown and Root have been after each other, and I'm sure that each one of them, by doing the job very well, has prompted the other one to try to do it better. And so they, while they've been competition, they've probably made each other both better companies. But they both, I don't think it would be fair to say that one was by far the leader or something. The McDermott people for years concentrated more on platforms and Brown and Root on pipelines, but then they looked up and said, well, McDermott said, I can build pipelines, and Brown and Root said, I can build platforms. So I wouldn't say, I would not want to say, as Doc Labore didn't want to say, answer some questions, I sure wouldn't want to put one company ahead of the other. They've both been really quite aggressive, but it was fortunately a gradual development along the way. It took quite an expenditure because of a fabrication yard that built offshore platforms has substantially more equipment and investment than a fabrication yard that gets the steel ready for a high-rise high building or something. And it's not a shipyard. An Avondale or one of the companies that builds the big ships, it's not that. So it is very specialized business. And unfortunately, it's good for only that business. When that business goes down, there's nothing you can do with it. With a staff of dozens of engineers working nonstop to keep pace with the industry's rapid march into deeper waters, McDermott continued to push for innovation in equipment, construction methods, and design criteria to address a suite of technical problems. How to weld pipe to pipe, how to analyze internal stresses of individual components, and how wave force dynamics interacted with the superstructure. Everything had to get bigger and stronger. Building an offshore platform to last decades while withstanding the forces of hurricanes required an entirely new way of thinking and problem solving for McDermott, its competitors, and the industry at large. The engineering technology totally has improved so much. We've got computers to use. Your ability to do mathematics is much greater than it was. The people who have studied the environment, we know so much more about how hurricanes are formed and how severe they are and how they grow and so the, the, that lets, leads to a better prediction of what the force is on that structure. Once it's out there, it's got to stand what comes along. Well, in the very early times, uh, one of the leading oceanographers in the late 40s predicted that the biggest wave that would come along in the Gulf of Mexico was going to be 32 feet high. And during Camille, they measured a 75-foot or when the wave gauge broke. The industry, in the very early days, had a few hurricanes that caused some damage. Then there was a, a fairly decent period of time that there was relatively minimal hurricane damage. Some came through, but not through the area where there were many platforms. And then Hurricane Hilda came through in 54, and Betsy in 55. But after Hurricane Hilda, the industry got together uh, and had a very impromptu show-and-tell session. It was in what was then the Roosevelt Hotel. And people were asked to come and bring a very honest evaluation of damage, what survived and what didn't. And that was put together. You have those notes that resulted in that meeting. Now, uh, 
A year later, Hurricane Betsy comes through. And so uh, Betsy then uh, uh, does more damage. It also came to another area of platforms. And I have the statistics, but in that time, about 35 or 35, somewhere in that number of platforms either went over or were so badly damaged that they had to be uh, removed. And not long after that, led by the man who was uh, the one who put the thing together, uh, Carl Dawson was at that time uh, Standard uh, California's chief engineer. He was quite active in API. And he got API interested in putting together a a meeting to see if the industry would support API work on offshore platforms. Up until that time, there was none. And so the invitations were sent out, and I was sent by McDermott. We met here in Houston at the old Rice Hotel. And out of that, I went as a skeptic. I thought we'd work for most of the oil companies, and they couldn't even agree on what kind of boat cleats would go on the boat landings, much less agree on how the structure should be built. But the theme of that meeting that came out was we need to do two things. We need to put together a set of standards, guidelines, or whatever you want to call it, that would keep the uninformed out of trouble. Because the industry realized there really wasn't a competitive advantage in having it. If I have a better platform than you do, because if yours goes over, the whole industry is blamed. And so the, the, the first need was to build guidelines or assistance to help those that had not done their homework out of trouble. And the other was to form the basis of government regulation that we knew someday was bound to come. And so out of that came the offshore committee. And I've been in that thing ever since this first meeting was 1966. And so uh, in that time, I think it's actually amazing how much Work has been done. The API works all volunteer. We haven't hired anyone to do the work. It's done by people assigned to by their company. And unfortunately, when their company assigns them to API, they don't often give them any extra time to do the work. So a good part of that work is done on the kitchen table at home at night. That's when I did most of mine. And so out of that has come to me just a, a remarkable instance of not necessarily self-policing because the industry had no uh, way of enforcing it, but it was providing the tools that were there to use. Out of that has come API RP2A, which is recommended practice for designing, fabricating, and constructing offshore platforms. And that book has never intended to be the absolute latest word high tech, but it is a document that a good engineer can read and use, and you'll stay out of trouble and come up with a totally adequate structure. In the early 1970s, one of McDermott's main customers, Shell Oil, took a giant technological leap with a major discovery in over a thousand feet of water. To develop this field named Cognac, Shell and McDermott had to go well beyond the boundaries of current engineering capacity to build and install a colossal structure about the size of the Empire State Building, farther out than anything imaginable at the time. Successfully executing the three-piece Cognac platform, required a paradigm shift. Gordon Sterling, Shell's project manager on Cognac, worked closely with Griff Lee and his crackshot team to design and build this engineering marvel. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jason. 
When I moved from the Bel Air Research Center to downtown Houston to lead the structural design of Shell's three-piece cognac platform, Griff Lee was already a legend in the industry. We worked alongside Griff's engineering group in McDermott, mostly on installation issues, loadout, transport, launching, which impacted the structural design of cognac. At our joint meetings that he occasionally attended, I remember him being very encouraging, and he would remind us that we were on the forefront doing things that had never been done before. He would say that's a plus, because there are no old gray beers to tell us it can't be done, so let's figure it out and do it. And we did. Working on cognac was one of the crowning achievements of my career, and I am sure many of those from McDermott felt the same. Griff Lee had a big influence on developing the engineering talent at McDermott and indeed in the industry. He was a real leader and groundbreaking civil engineer in the offshore oil and gas world. Griff Lee's entire professional career was devoted to the development, design, and launching of fixed offshore structures. To commemorate the 50th anniversary of the offshore industry, Griff was named by the Offshore Technology Conference as one of four individuals to receive the prestigious Offshore Heritage Award. In 1998, he was one of the first 15 to be inducted into the Offshore Energy Center's Hall of Fame as an industry pioneer. His accolades were many, but he will forever be associated with pioneering the steel jacket platform, the foundation upon which the offshore industry was built. Really, the fixed platform has been the bread and butter. Most drilling, particularly exploratory, has worked out much more satisfactory from either the, from the mobile units. But for the actual major part of the production, that nice fixed platform with that well up in the air where you can turn the valve to shut it off, shut it off and get out there and see your production equipment has been a much more reliable and really safer operation. But the industry now is working hard on being able to go out and still deeper water where they have located bigger and bigger uh, reservoirs that really can't economically be worked from a fixed platform. The cost just would get prohibitive. And so the more of the trend now has been to work on the other water, the, the floating production on bottom, subsea, the rest of these things. But if you look at the things that have happened in this industry in 50 years, it's hard to believe. This concludes our episode of the Energy Pioneers Podcast. I'm Jason Terrio. Stay tuned for more episodes and be sure to check out the new Energy Education Foundation website at energyeducation.org. And if you ever come to Galveston, Texas, be sure to visit the Ocean Star Offshore Drilling Rig Museum, which pays tribute to the men and women and companies that built the offshore oil and gas industry.